0: So this might be one of the most offensive I am statements to the world uh, that we're going to study in this series. Uh, And as Judy said, it's the uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, And the reason it's so offensive to the world uh, is that it's arrogant to assume that we have the one truth, uh, the one way to be saved, that there's no other way that... um, this is the only path to heaven. The world would consider that offensive now, uh, and, and arrogant. And so, uh, this week is going to be, um, a week in which, uh, Jesus's words don't line up with what people want to hear. Um, but they still bring a message of hope. And so I think that it's going to be a, a good, uh, sermon and a good week. Uh, I had a lot of fun preparing for this one, but, uh, It's not a statement that is um, easily received by our society today. So we've been studying this summer the I Am Statements of Jesus through the Gospel of John, Uh, and as he was walking through Israel speaking to the crowds, performing miracles and teaching in parables, people were following him around, and everyone wanted to know who he was and who he is. Who is this man that makes blind people see and makes paralyzed people able to walk again? Why is he here? What does he want? What is he going to do? And everyone wanted to know. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They said some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and then others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. So everyone was guessing, trying to figure out who he was. And today, people have a lot of opinions about who Jesus is, too. Some people say he was a great moral teacher, here to help people achieve moral excellence, maybe even spiritual transcendence. Some people say he was one of the prophets who have come over the centuries. Some say he was a liar, trying to gain a following and a name for himself. Some say he was a revolutionary, here to bring social justice to the world as an activist, marching for people's rights. And some people just think he was crazy, but that everyone around him was too superstitious to notice. There's a ton of opinions about who Jesus is, both in the first century and today in our society as well. And this series, this uh, I Am series, is all about ignoring those voices and letting Jesus speak for himself. So far we've seen him reveal himself through five I Am statements. And as I've said with these statements, he's revealing both things about who he is and his mission, as well as declaring himself to be God, because the name I am is the name of God in Scripture. And so by using it in these ways, he's claiming to be God. So for a very quick recap, the statements so far that we've studied are, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door for the sheep, I am the good shepherd, And then last week, I am the resurrection and the life. So with that, let's open with prayer and then we'll dive into week six of the series. Father God, I thank you for this day that we can come and worship you. I just thank you that you have revealed yourself to the world, that we don't have to try and guess at who you are, that you have revealed yourself and that you have revealed the truth to us. I just ask that you would prepare our hearts to receive it. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, each week I've been kind of filling in the blanks around the statements beforehand. Um, As we know, the Gospels are are a story. Uh, So you can't just... uh, Like, you wouldn't open a novel to the middle and start reading. We also can't do that with the Gospels. We kind of have to understand what's going on around our passage. And so, I kind of want to pick up and just give a very quick synopsis of what happened since last week. Um, Last week, Lazarus... Lazarus was raised from the dead in Bethany by Jesus, uh, and a lot has taken place since then. So right after he raised Lazarus from the dead, the Pharisees called the emergency meeting of the Sanhedrin uh, to try and figure out what to do with Jesus. They were scared that everyone was going to believe in him if he just went around raising people from the dead. So they're like, what do we do about this? And they decided to start plotting to have him killed. And if you remember back in Easter, we actually studied... Um, that story because Caiaphas made a prophecy about Jesus when he was speaking and and plotting against him. So in the meantime, Jesus and his disciples are actually hiding after he raises Lazarus from the dead. Um, They're hiding away uh, and then six days before the Passover festival was supposed to take place, they come back out of the wilderness to Bethany where he raised Lazarus from the dead. And while he was there, Mary and Martha held a dinner in his arms. And at this dinner, Mary poured expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. And this is when Judas got back and said, you know, we could have sold this perfume and fed a whole bunch of people. And Jesus rebuked him. Then the next day, Jesus left Bethany and headed into Jerusalem. And that's the triumphal entry that we look at on Palm Sunday, when he rides in on a donkey. So he goes into the city, and then while at the festival, he preaches about his death, and predicts his death, and preaches about his mission. And then a little after this, they would go into that upper room for the Passover meal. And Jesus, during this Passover meal, according to John, washes his disciples' feet. He then predicts his betrayal and identifies Judas as the one who will betray him. And then Judas leaves, um, and then he predicts Peter's betrayal as well. He says, uh, before the rooster is probe, you will betray me three times. And then he says that they cannot follow him where he is going, but that he's leaving them. But they will follow later. And then we come to this passage in John 14, and this is our passage today. uh, John 14, verses 1 to 7. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Then Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. So in our passage today, we sort of have this cryptic message by Jesus at the first about where he is going, how they'll know the way and not to worry. Uh, He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. My father's house has many rooms. Uh, If that were not, so would I not have told you that I'm going to prepare a place. And then he says he's going to come back and be with them. And then he's going to take them back as well. They know the way to the place where he's going. And it's kind of an interesting few verses. We use it a lot. Uh, Sometimes you'll hear it at funerals, uh, or when someone's passed away. Often when people hear this passage, they they kind of picture Jesus talking about um, going to heaven to get things ready for us. And then when it says he's coming back, it's talking about the second coming of Jesus. But like I always say, when you're studying scripture, you kind of have to take the context into account. And most of the resources I was studying with actually point towards this passage as referring to his imminent death, because he says he's about to leave them. And then when it says he's coming back, it's talking about his return from death in the resurrection. So by going to his death, to the cross through his betrayal by Judas, he is making it possible for them to live in the immediate presence of God. His leaving that evening when he was going to be arrested in the garden was actually for their benefit. And then he did come back for them when he was resurrected from the dead. Jesus is about to face crucifixion here in this passage, one of the most painful deaths imaginable. And yet his concern here is for his disciples. He tells them to calm their hearts. He's going away to secure their future destiny, even though. He is leaving. He will come back. And so, based on all the context, the kind of takeaway of this is that Jesus isn't going to prepare a place for us. He has already prepared a place for us in the presence of God. This work in this passage is already done. He has gone and prepared a place in the presence of God. So Jesus says all this, and then we get to verse 5, and then Thomas responds. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And so it's clear that they don't understand. And sometimes when you're studying, it's hard to not get a little bit irritated with the disciples um, because they just always seem so clueless. But I would have to assume that if we were in their shoes, we would not have understood it either. After all, we have the full picture. We are 2,000 years later looking back We have the Holy Spirit living in us and they didn't receive the Holy Spirit until Pentecost. So they didn't actually understand, they didn't have that enlightenment that we knew. And of course at this point it was also normal for disciples to ask their rabbis clarifying questions anyways. But one thing that the disciples do whenever they ask these dumb, these seemingly dumb questions is that they draw out important responses and clarifications. From Jesus for the disciples that are useful for us as well, as he often would reveal himself to his disciples in ways that he didn't always do with larger crowds. I think that Thomas is very relatable, at least to me, because when you don't understand something, it's always natural to just want the facts, to have someone explain it to you. Uh, and, And obviously, you know, Thomas is always portrayed as a doubter in scripture, you know, everyone calls him Doubting Thomas. He's the one who always had to, he had to feel the holes in Jesus' hands to believe he'd come back from the dead. But the truth is that I think Thomas captures the inner mental workings of most of us today. Because we always want the facts. We want it explained to us. We want to know what's true, what's real. We don't like things being left to mystery. We need to understand how everything works. And so I think personally in this passage, Thomas really captures, a lot of our uh, personal views of the world around us today in our society. So Jesus responds in verse 6 to 7. So he says, how can we know the way if we don't know where you're going? And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. So this here is our sixth I Am Statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this is important for a number of reasons. I I think it's probably one of the most important I Am Statements. It captures kind of the essence of all of them. Uh, And it's also very quoted. But what it reveals about Jesus is very important because it's an exclusive statement. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And it's also kind of a preparatory statement as well for the last I Am statement, which will be next week. So let's kind of recap the context here. Jesus says he's leaving, he's going to go prepare a place for them, and then he will return. They can't come with him now, they will follow him later. But he tells them that they know the way to where he's going already, which is into God's presence through death. So when they ask for clarification, Jesus says, I am the way. I am the way into God's presence. And that's what he's saying. So I want want to dig into that statement deeper, but more in an application sense. Uh, What should you take away from this statement? And what is Jesus revealing to us about himself through this statement? So the first thing is that Jesus is the exclusive way to God the Father. And this is where we get into those um, parts of this that might be offensive in our society today. He's not a way. He's not one way that you can choose. He is the way, the only way. You know, if we all got to our cars after church and said, let's all go and meet in Summerside, we could all find different routes to take from each other. We might go on some of the same roads, where we could all take different side trips here and there. We could all find a very different way to summerside from each other and still get there. It's possible, but in winter, if you want to go to Moncton, if you want to drive in your car to go to Moncton, to go to Costco or wherever, whether you like it or not, you are driving across that bridge. There is no other way to cross the street in your car in February than the bridge. It is exclusively the way to get to New Brunswick in your car. You might want to fly, you might want to take the ferry, but those aren't an option to go to Makda. You have to drive. Similarly, Jesus is the only exclusive way to God the Father. There is no other path you can take. First Timothy 2.5 says, for there is one God, and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. You can claim to be a good person and try to follow the Ten Commandments. But Romans 3:23 says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. You can try to argue that your sin isn't a big deal. You know, I maybe I've you know done a couple bad things, but I've never killed anybody. But Romans 6.23 says that the penalty for sin is death. Not just murder, not just stealing, but sin in general. There's no distinction. Whatever your sin is, the penalty is death. At the end of the day, we are all guilty. And we are all separated from God by our sin. But Jesus has come as the way to restore that relationship and to make us right with God. Romans 3.23 may say that we all fall short of the glory of God, but Romans 3.24 says that all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Romans 6.23 may say that the penalty for sin is death, but you know what else it says? It says that the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. He is the way to God the Father, first of all, because he has revealed the Father to us. As we see in our passage today in verse 7, when he says, If you know me, you will know my Father, and from now on you do know him and have seen me. He reveals God the Father to us. He's also the way to God the Father secondly because he has opened the way to him as we see in Hebrews 10:19 to 20. It says therefore brothers and sisters since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. There is no other way to have access to God the Father and there is no other way to be saved. It is through Jesus. And Jesus alone, that we can have a relationship with God. The second thing here to understand is that Jesus is the exclusive truth. And through all of this, the key word here is exclusive. Truth is such a relative concept in our postmodern world today. I was speaking with someone a while back, and I think we were talking about conspiracy theories about COVID and, and about the facts to support or not support them. I was trying to, I don't know. Convert them from conspiracies, I guess. Um, but they made the comment that a fact really is just something that people generally agree on. So, really, a fact can be anything as long as enough people agree. And I was blown away. It's like, well, that's not what a fact is. That's an opinion. A fact is something that is verifiable as true and real and accurate. A fact in its very nature cannot be subjective. This idea, while postmodernism feels new to us in our society, it's not new in history. During Jesus' trial, Jesus said to Pilate, I have come into this world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate responded by saying, Of course, what is truth? Truth is truth. It doesn't change because it is not, by nature, subjective. I have a friend, Stephen Vesey, who has a very severe intolerance to gluten. And by that I mean if you use the same spatula to cook for him that you did to make pancakes a day before and you didn't wash it, he will be sick for days. It is severe. Now suppose that he saw a very delicious looking cinnamon roll and he said, you know, That looks really good, I kinda wanna eat that. I don't think I identify as having a gluten intolerance today. I'm gonna have it. Do you think he'd be all right? (laughs) No, he'd be miserably sick for days and days. And why is that? Because it's true that he has a gluten intolerance. It's not subjective to his own personal opinion or his desire to have a cinnamon roll. His body will not change based on his personal desires or views. His body will still reject gluten. It will actually attack his his, his own body because it is true he has an intolerance. Truth is what is real. We can't choose what is and is not truth. It just is what it is. Jesus is the exclusive truth. John 1 says of Jesus, in the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So we see that Jesus is identified as being the Word of God. Then in John 17, Jesus says this, to Bible by the truth. Your Word is truth. Jesus is the Word, and the Word is truth. Truth is what is real, and Jesus is, in fact, what is real. There's no other truth. The scripture that we have, it is truth. He is the only truly true truth. There is one path, one road, and one truth that leads to heaven. And as truth is not subjective, the other truths that we have and see in the world uh, that are so-called truths therefore cannot be true. Jesus is exclusively true. And the third thing is that Jesus is the exclusive source of life. Ephesians 2, verse 1-2 to says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. As a result of the fall in Genesis, we all, without Jesus, live in sin. We are dead in our sin. Without Jesus, there's no path to life. Eventually, we will all die. There's no avoiding it. Science and medicine can prolong our lives. People live longer, happier lives now than they did in terms of, you know, you don't die from fever when you're 30. But eventually, no matter how good science is, our bodies will fail us. And we will pass away. Because we live in a broken world under a curse. But last Sunday, in the statement we studied, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. There is only one exclusive source of life for us to receive, and that is Jesus. No other path, no other so-called truth will give it to us. 1 John 5, to 12 says this, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. He is an exclusive source of life, and without Him we do not have it. We are already dead. And 1 Corinthians 15 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And what all this means is that Jesus is the only way to be right with God. And to find new life, both here on earth and everlasting life after this world has passed away. There is no other way; it is exclusively offered through Jesus. So, as I conclude, I want to make sure that, with all the conflicting messages in the world around us, uh, with this postmodern society we now live in, where everyone can have their own truth, uh, and that all roads lead to heaven. That we know without a doubt that Jesus is not just a way or a truth or a life that we can choose. He is the way, the truth, and he is the life. There is no other. He is exclusive. He's exclusive in that he is the only path to God the Father, the only path to being right with him, and the only path to find life. But He's inclusive in that that door, the only door you can go through, is open to anyone who wants to walk through it. While the world around us wants wants us to believe that you can choose whatever truth you like or follow whatever religion, we know better. As Billy Graham said in the video at the beginning, Jesus begged God to spare him the cross if there was any other way to save us But there was no other way. You know, the Bible talks about the amount of love that God had for us for sacrificing his son to save us. Do you think he would have done that? If there was another way to be saved, by finding transcendence through Buddhism, or by worshiping Allah, or being a good person and following the Ten Commandments, he never would have sent Jesus to the cross if there was another way to be saved. Why would he do that? because he knew that this was the only way. Jesus is exclusive. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And as we leave here today, let's consider the implications of that for us. If he is the only exclusive way to be saved, then it is not much more important that we are being light to the world, because it is only by him that they will be saved. So as we go about our lives and go to work and interact with our friends and our neighbors, let's be light to them. The world is hurting and broken, and Jesus has come to give us a path out of it. So let's honor him by continuing the mission that he gave us to the lost and hurting people in the world around us. Father God, I thank you that you did create a way for us to be right with you gave us a path to be saved, and that you gave us truth to guide us in a world of confusion and many fake truths to lead us astray. I just ask that you would help to keep us on the path that you've set out for us, and that you would help us to share the light that you've brought into the world with everyone else around us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.